Hey, we're back. This is the LMN Alumni Podcast. I'm Steven Sandberg. Thanks so much for being here. Our guest today is the former editor-in-chief of the Daily Barometer, and he's currently a digital content specialist at Fuel Medical Group. It's Sean Basinger. How you doing, Sean? Pretty good. Good. How you doing, Steven? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode. Uh, how are things going for you lately at Fuel? I would say terrific. Uh, we actually just celebrated our reopening uh, celebration in the town of Camas, uh, Washington, for folks who've been there. And uh, yeah, basically got to finally see some faces outside of masks for those of us who were vaccinated. And uh, <laughs> basically just getting back into the routine of things uh, uh, as I was personally working remote uh, this whole time until July and now it's back into the office for two days a week so so you're back in the office now for the first time what was that like going in because you've been working for them for a while remote now what is it like going into the office for the first time and actually interacting in person yeah so I've been with fuel for about a year now and Going back into the office and seeing people, especially other people who were in the same situation as I was, whereas we started work at home, uh, aside from like an orientation day, just kind of in mass and staying away from everybody, we all unanimously agree that it was just, it, it was like the first day of school all over again. Like, and it was just weird. <laughs> like, and, uh, me personally, I spent time basically going around just like, okay. I've introduced myself to you. I haven't introduced myself to you. I've introduced myself to you, but it was on Teams. So that was really kind of kind of strange and at the same time kind of fun in its own way. So Yeah, because you've been interacting with people for an entire year and a half over Zoom. These people that you met for the first time when you joined and now you're working together in person. Do you find that it was a pretty easy transition or were there some things that you needed to adjust to about going back in person around these people? Oh, there was a lot that I had to adjust to. And um, well, funny enough, it was actually, so, so it was a year that I'd been with Fuel. Um, half year, I actually was uh, doing slight remote slash non-remote work uh, when I was still in the journalism realm, but uh, we can get into that a little later. But uh, no, it was just it's just a mixed bag just in terms of uh, interactions like it, it's all it's all been positive. Uh, really haven't had anybody um, who's, you know, kind of looked at me the wrong way, like, well, why are, why are you talking to me? Like we've all you know, we've all been a little shy because it's you know, we're getting used to kind of putting ourselves out there again. So yeah, being around other people. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, Fuel Medical Group uh, and the work that you do there as a digital content specialist. Yeah, so uh, Fuel Medical Group, it's a uh, business advisory group, uh, consulting firm, uh, essentially, for um, ENT and audiology uh, practices, um, just kind of across the U.S. Um, they also help uh, hospitals, medical centers, and university clinics, so they'll help with, like, uh, uh, basically putting together like websites, uh, content on the website, which is kind of where I come into play and a couple of other folks that I work with. Uh, we also have like human resources, uh, tools that we basically uh, help them out with. So basically if, uh, for instance, if a clinic is looking to uh, basically just kind of get some new resources on being the best they can be, they turn to fuel, so. So as a digital content specialist, that probably requires you to do a lot of different types of things, writing and, and social media and things like that. So what type of skills do you have to bring to a role like that? 
How many ha- how many different hats do you have to wear? Oh, a variety of hats for sure, Stephen. Uh, and I would definitely say, you know, I don't want to jump the gun here in terms of topics, but um, I can definitely say that coming from a background of journalism and writing and editing has really been a trump card in just helping to get a good leg up in this particular gig uh, because a lot of hats basically I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question but uh, in terms of just day-to-day stuff that I'll find myself doing like um, I'll manage edit and post uh, care provider blogs and I mean these are basically like hundreds of blogs that we have for hundreds of providers uh, again across the country Um, I also help uh, manage edit and clean up a basically a whole archive uh, or library of, of content you could call me the one really that we have just basically on a variety of topics like okay so so you know when you go to like a maybe a doctor's website or maybe if it's even just like a general website like webmd and you might have like any given topic on any given type of condition um, mm-hmm. well we do this uh, for the different providers who are members with fuel uh, in terms of just helping them out with their content but we have an entire library like maybe it'll be on conditions related to like uh you know like ear nose and throat conditions like maybe it'll be on like an ear infection and how to prevent them or maybe it'll be on uh, common allergy symptoms or maybe it'll be on uh throat conditions such as uh you know like laryngitis or something to that effect so just uh so it's a variety of topics that I'm basically jumping into on a day-to-day basis and uh, might be adding something new, might be going out and doing new research related to these topics, might be just kind of sprucing it up with, uh, and you'll love this, we use, uh, we still use AP style just to keep things consistent. So. Oh, there we go. Yeah. L- little, little aspect of the journalism world still bleeding over into your work now. Yeah. Well, as long as you're not writing those pieces where if I enter a symptom and say I have like a sore elbow or something, it says I have cancer. You know, as long as you're not writing that, I, th- I think <laughs> yeah, we're good. No, no, no we're yeah, no, I, we don't do any of that. We, we we like to keep it factual. So good. I, I want factual from my medical <laughs> my medical articles. So, Sean, we, we've talked about this a little bit, hinted at it, uh, but you were in journalism uh, for many years uh, in newspapers uh, before you moved over to Fuel. What sort of skills did you find transferred over the easiest from journalism to your new job? And what were some things that you needed to learn or relearn once you joined? Absolutely. So spent five years, and it sounds weird every time I, I recollect that, because I feel like just yesterday it was like 20, yeah, 2016. But yeah, so five years in journalism uh, before I departed, and the biggest skill that I took with me, which uh, even some journalists today that I know for a fact still kind of struggle with this, is the uh, just the ability that once you're done with all your meetings, all your talking points, all your interviews, whatever it's going to be, just sitting down and writing the damn thing, <laughs> which can always be one of the most difficult roadblocks you deal with even, even after the fact. But um, it just kind of setting priorities and setting timelines and personal deadlines in addition to just the hard deadlines that you have was always something that I really kept with me that I think has really helped in the long run. Um, and also just uh, in terms of the versatility of just talking to all kinds of different people uh, across the board, because uh, one thing that I do still at Fuel2 is um, 
in terms of project management, uh, there will be a lot of other folks that I'll work with, whether it will be uh, account managers, web developers, uh, videographers, uh, you name it. I mean, we've, we've, we've got a lot of good people working here. And uh, so really just kind of coming to the table and being able to work with other people um, in a really dynamic environment. Uh, journalism, I feel like, also gave me... Uh, really good edge in that in terms of just like when you're in the newsroom it's like okay well you've got uh, you know even if you're a reporter or an editor you've got your graphics designers you've got your uh, reporters who are your content producers essentially you've uh, sometimes you have video involved um, and and there's just a really big mix there and just getting used to working with so many people in such a uh, diverse environment in terms of just uh, creative thoughts and ideals uh, was really really gave a leg up uh, in just thriving in this position as well um, and, and a variety of other positions and jobs that are out there that folks might not even know exist yet. Now was it challenging moving into a field where you needed to write and edit a lot of medical writing like did you feel like you needed to learn a lot more about the medical side to better understand it and then to be able to better edit it absolutely and that was one thing that i was i, I guess a bit concerned about um at the same time a lot of the writing that i focused on in, uh, in the latter days in uh, Klamath falls and grants pass was actually uh related to healthcare. so there were actually some uh there was actually some familiar terminology that I'd encountered before. Um, the only hard part was basically maybe learning a new word, case in point. Um, well, it's a, it's a word I knew, but never really use that often. But otolaryngologist, uh, uh, ear, nose, and throat specialist. Um, I'm sorry, can you spell that, please, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, God. You had, but you had, to, you had to learn it, though. Yes, yes. Uh, and it is still by far one of the... Uh, I, I triple check... I triple check that word probably every day. <laughs> you got to get it in autocorrect. You know, you, you've got to get like a stenographer's keyboard where you can hit like an A and a plus and then it will just pop up. Exactly. Yeah. And even <laughs> then it might try to give you something different like oncologist. Wait, what? <laughs> no. And you got to be specific, you know, very, very specific terminology. You get something wrong. It changes uh, how you read the entire thing. Absolutely. So do you have to work with uh, some folks that would help kind of familiarize you with those terms like are you working with doctors or medical professionals that are kind of explaining some of these things to you or is this something where you need to do your own research and, and kind of teach yourself yeah i'm glad you asked that because a couple of the assignments that i get actually uh will be forwarded to our uh we have a, a director of uh audiology um her name is rose and she basically uh she was an audiologist herself and so she knows all the terminology top to bottom and also uh, knows what uh, a lot of our members on the audiology side are basically just, you know, kind of looking for and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, she just helps us review that top to bottom to make sure that, um, you know, all the uh, T's are crossed and I's are dotted and all the terminology makes sense. So uh, we do have plenty of people in in the company as well who just help folks such as myself just you know make sure that everything is accurate up front and uh, ready for folks to read okay now pop quiz sean what is an audiologist 
So an audiologist is a doctor who specializes in uh, hearing conditions, mostly hearing loss. Um, they can also help with a condition that's known as tinnitus. Some folks pronounce it tinnitus. Uh, and <laughs> jury's still out. I prefer tinnitus myself. <laughs> um, that's the next article. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, they also help with uh, hearing aids and counseling. So basically, um, if, if anybody, um, or including yourself, has ever had um, a, a hearing test, uh, it most likely would have been done at an audiologist's office. And they're essentially the experts who can and do help folks basically just... Because uh, the thing with hearing aids, Stephen, is... It's not just something where it's like, okay, well, you have hearing loss. Well, here's a hearing aid, and now you can hear better. Like, there are actually really intricate programming uh, procedures that each device has to go through. And audiologists, uh, specifically, are specially trained to basically help folks get through this and just find the right specifications that works for them. So they actually... You know, because the thing is, too, with hearing loss, and that's one thing that I've learned myself as somebody who also um, is very likely to have hearing loss in uh, much sooner than I want. Um, I had a childhood riddled with ear infections and never had a uh, key procedure done to uh, kind of uh, curtail the damage in that. Um, so it's very likely that I will need hearing aids potentially when I'm in my 50s or so, maybe even 40s, knock on well, my glasses, my, my, my desk is glass, so not wood. <laughs> but yeah, but, and, a, uh, and in a field like that, you know, it's it's not as simple, like you said, of just, you know, giving someone a hearing aid and then they can hear. It's not like you're putting a microphone and a little tiny speaker inside somebody's ear canal and it's just making everything louder. We're talking about sound vibrations entering somebody's ear and then processing those vibrations into sound that's recognized by the brain. That is complicated stuff. They are exactly complicated. You you hit it on the head. They are complex medical devices. Is there something that you've written about in your time at Fuel uh, that you most enjoyed? Maybe something new that you learned or a topic that really kind of captured your own attention as you were writing about or editing it? Anything like that uh, that comes to mind immediately? You know, actually, I'd say all of the above that I even just mentioned, just going in and writing about all of these different uh, manufacturers um, and actually learning about the fact that it's like, okay, well, it's not just a one and done. It's like you see a commercial on TV trying to sell you some device that you just stick in your ear, um, but actually learning about all the intricacies of, because uh, I mean, I'm, I've always been a pretty big, uh, I've always been fascinated with technology. Um, I mean, a lot of people know me then the you know, first thing that might pop their minds like, oh, well, he's into like, uh, you know, he's really into uh, old computer games or he's really into current computer games. Uh, ironically, I'm not so much into cars. I'm not sure why that is. Um, never, <laughs> never did get to the bottom of that one. Um, lately, the thing is fish tanks. But um, no, I've, I've always <laughs> just been I've always right. I've always been uh, fascinated just with um different kinds of uh, technological advances that are out there in the world. And I think that that's one thing that also initially drew me to journalism at the time, too, was just kind of seeing how that realm was going to evolve. Um, at the same time, I'm also kind of, uh, ironically, as the expression goes, an old soul. So I also just kind of had a uh, kind of had a soft spot for the way things were, I guess, and in, in terms of uh, the journalistic practice and just kind of getting out there, seeking the truth and reporting it with nothing but a 
pen, pad, and paper. Absolutely. Now let's talk about the journalism side of things because you were the editor-in-chief of the Daily Barometer during your time at Orange Media Network and OSU, and then you worked for a number of papers uh, in Washington and Oregon. What did you realize about the journalism industry when you got into it out of college? Is there anything that you learned that when you got into your first job that either surprised you or maybe was something new uh, that you learned when you got into your first job? Well, I would say it's a bit of a hybrid model in terms of it was simultaneously better and worse than I expected. And and, and <laughs> let me try to explain that one. So when I, when I first started getting into journalism, just the student papers, because I actually went to Lynn Benton Community College before I went to OSU, before I got into Orange Media Network. Um, and I'll talk about how those kind of supplemented each other as experiences later. But pretty much somewhere down the road, whether it's a, a grumpy uncle at Thanksgiving or a, a college professor who's somebody else's grumpy uncle at Thanksgiving, uh, basically telling you like, oh, well, journalism is a dying field. And so you really shouldn't get into it unless you want some super heartache and to be broke. Well, number one, that uncle is just really cynical and doesn't know what he's talking about. And number two, Unfortunately, he does know what he's talking about. So there was a little little truth in there, even if it was wrong on some other things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that being said, there are, and it's a crapshoot still right now. I, I I would say there there are newsrooms out there who that are uh, that are getting it that have the staff that are putting out stellar content every day, and I've I've had the pleasure of working with a few of them. Um, Unfortunately, there are other newsrooms that, regardless of what they're trying to do and what they're trying to keep up with in terms of just advances, uh, in terms of relevancy in the community, um, unfortunately, they just may have a publisher or, uh, in some cases, just an entire company come in and take over, and suddenly that's when the layoffs start and other changes are just overshadowing the progress, and it's just not a very fun time and it's less about i would say the demand of journalism well, well, well let me rephrase this it, i'd say it's less about the demand of journalism being needed in the world as opposed to just a series of really unfortunate business decisions all across the board <laughs> what were some of those are... business decisions well the biggest ones i would say is just not focusing on the essence that really makes a newspaper a newspaper not really focusing back on the hard-hitting just straight to the facts local coverage that we need at a lot of uh, small town and even metro newspapers um i think that a lot of publishers right now um personally and, and i've witnessed this too a lot of publishers are focusing uh, more so on what's hitting virally and what uh, you know what's succeeding online and on the internet as entertainment basically as opposed to what actual journalism should be and 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 what it's supposed to be um, and and the unfortunate part about this is there is an audience out there that wants straight to the point journalism wants hard-hitting dogged enterprise journalism uh, there's also there are also plenty of people out there who are still producing great work and who want to produce that work. I know this for a fact. Um, 
the unfortunate part is you have the uh, publishers coming in. Um, I don't want to call them a middleman because honestly, they're we all know this. They're, they're kind of on the top of things in terms of just taking total control in a lot of situations. And unfortunately, um, and I experienced this uh, actually in the uh, in the Tri Cities. It was my first job out of college where um, there was a story that. Uh, was kind of going viral. I'm sure you remember this. Uh, you remember the, the the scary clowns that were invading towns? Yeah, I I actually wrote a, a, a snippet on that because I knew, and, and this was partially my fault too. Um, I was I was semi pitching this to the editor, and uh, the editor was just working with me slightly. But we uh, we put our heads together, and uh, to 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 appease the the almighty McClatchy, we came together with this story about how well. Yep, the scary clown craze is out there, but cops in the Tri-Cities don't think that it's a real issue. And it's like, okay, well, that was a story, but not at the same time. Sure. And, and there's a lot of that going on in, in newsrooms across the country, unfortunately. And I'm sure you've seen it, too, just yeah. with some of your case studies. Yeah, where, where you're getting these newspapers trying to tap into something that may be popular or controversial or something that will get clicks uh, and get eyes exactly. on the website where some of those advertisers are. And I think I think that's interesting about what's happening to a lot of newspapers because, as you said, Sean, there are incredible journalists working in local news, people who are connected to their communities and getting out and talking to people and uncovering stories. And at the same time, you've got folks that are running the newspapers, and because of you know 20 years' worth of bad decisions regarding advertising and revenue – are getting to the point where they're trying, they're needing to find new ways to pay for it all. Mm-hmm. And you have that the, the the reporters kind of stuck in, in the middle where they're wanting to do good journalism, but how much is really there for them to be able to work with in terms of, you know, how many reporters do we have on a staff and, and how much time can they have uh, to dedicate to a story? So I wanted to ask you, Sean, as someone who's been in that situation, help paint us a picture of what it's like to be a journalist in a newsroom, you are working on important stories and important work, but there's also whatever's going on behind the scenes. Tell us about what it's like for you on the inside and how it affects your day-to-day as a reporter. Well, so I would, uh, and I'm thinking of uh, just kind of two directions to go with this. Um, I guess the first uh, would be just kind of what I experienced uh, out in uh, yeah, just out in the world after uh, after leaving Oregon State University, um, and it is definitely the newsrooms that I've been in, and I've experienced two different. Uh, well, actually, no, that's not true. I've experienced three different types of atmospheres, and the first and the last that I experienced, and this was both at um, the first was at the Tri City Herald, and the last was at the Grants Pass Daily Courier, and it was uh, both of those experiences were just uh, a lot of just run and gun go get out there get the story um you know do whatever you have to and uh the good news is i would say that that is a lot of what does embody really good quality journalism the bad news is burnout does exist and uh, i definitely experienced burnout at both of these environments personally um the first time i just kind of shrugged it off and i'm like all right well i'll find something better um so having that same effect kind of take place at the last paper that i worked at it was kind of like reevaluating everything and like okay well if these you know if these publishers just 
can't really get it together, then then what what hopes am, am you know am I personally going to have? Um, what are some kind of the, the things? What are some of the things that have caused burnout in young journalists? Well, first off, I would say that these publishers are letting so many other talented journalists go to begin with. So you've got more people who are taking on more work, but they aren't getting any elevated compensation for it. Like the, so the, 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 unfortunately it kind of goes back to grumpy uncle at Thanksgiving. It's like the, the, (laughs) which apparently I am becoming, I guess, but uh, the, the pay's not there uh, as it should be. Uh, the help's not there. There are even less editors that newsrooms have in terms of just being guiding hands and coaches and mentors for newer reporters who are coming in. Um, you've either got one, if you're lucky, one editor who uh, basically oversees everybody and uh, tries their hardest, but regardless, you know, can't make the cut because they've got their own assignments, they've got their own deadlines, they've got their own meetings that the publishers just aren't, for whatever reason, at this critical time keeping them out of. And unfortunately, then you have the other side of the coin where you have, well, maybe two or, oh, holy crap, you have three editors in the newsroom, but they don't know squat about mentoring. They they don't know how to teach somebody who hasn't already been in the field uh, for like 30 years, basically the ropes. And, and I get it. You know, you go to any job, you should not expect somebody to hold your hand the whole way through. There are certain fundamentals that you should be accustomed to, but I cannot count how many times, whether it's at papers that I've worked at or papers that I've heard about other people working at um, throughout the state, uh, where they've encountered uh, someone who just wouldn't give them a clear explanation on an assignment or didn't take the time to really just kind of walk them through um, fundamentals that they didn't even experience the first time so to speak but that they just needed a bit of a refresh on like okay well it's been like six months since i've done a city government story um you know could you you know could we walk through some of the fundamentals on us a little bit maybe and, and that's just that 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 mentorship that coaching just isn't happening yeah, especially with the newsrooms shrinking the way that they have there's fewer people around to be able to provide that sort of coaching it seems like Absolutely. And that was that was one thing that just really struck me. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about uh, I'm, I'm talking about all the uh, bad parts of the sandwich here. I'm going to get to uh, the, what I'd say was my best newsroom experience. And that was by far in the Klamath Falls Herald and News. Now, this was also where I got to intern in 2015 uh, as part of the uh, Snowden program. And uh Oh, and to be clear, it's the Charles Snowden Program for Excellence in Journalism, not, you know, not the other guy. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It'd be a very different internship uh, with the yeah. Edward Snowden internship. There was a lot of running and a lot of espionage. <laughs> I you, wore were, all black. you were stationed I, in Russia for six months. I wore all black every day. Oh, wait, I no. do that anyway. No. <laughs> no, so, tell me about the Herald and News. Yeah, so uh, Herald and News, uh, I, I got to work with a uh, just... A, outstanding editor um, who was there at the time and he's actually he is editor at the uh, Ben Bulletin now um, uh, Jerry O'Brien but uh, he and I we had some just really good chats all the time just about the state of the industry things that we wanted to see changed things that were working well that we wanted to stick with um, and 
regardless, and I mean, my first phone call, I will never forget my first phone call with him before I interned there. And it's like, and, and you know, and, and very, very typical editor. It's like, okay, this guy is no nonsense. And he, you know, he expects good quality work. And he, he wants me to, he wants me to know my stuff. Um, and the way that we just kind of ended, he's like, well, the important thing though is like, I want you to, I want you to be able to, to have fun here. I want you to be able to enjoy this experience. And I feel like that's one thing that really set, really stood out in terms of the, the other journalism outlets that I've worked at is this was someone who he wanted to make sure that his reporters were at, at least to a degree well enough taken care of to where there wasn't going to be, you know, that, that they wanted to come to work in the morning. And I did. That was, I worked there for two more years. And that was um, before Adams Publishing came in. And basically, it's a hedge fund that just basically took over, I guess is the best way to describe it. They call themselves a publishing company. I call them a hedge fund. But uh, they came in and basically um, everything became micromanaged. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they started having journalists punch in for time cards online. A journalist and a time card. You ever heard of anything so ridiculous? <laughs> Especially because journalism is not a job where you go in at nine and clock out at five. News happens 24-7. Exactly. exactly. And it, it just became such a circus. But, but the time... The time before Adams really just kind of flowed in, because um, that's the funny thing too. They were there for a year and a half of the two years that I uh, that I roughly worked there, but uh, they didn't really start implementing policies until later on. But that's that's when everybody could really start seeing the difference there. And uh, but uh, no, and I just felt like it was honestly a, a good lesson. And and this is something that. Uh, I tried my best to practice uh, as an editor at the Barometer. Um, I know that some editors were, some student editors were also harder on other folks um, than you know they necessarily should have been. Um, and maybe I was one of those editors from time to time. Uh, I, I do feel like we expected a lot during our year, but just kind of going through everything I've gone through, it was a wake up call that it's like you know there are some people who some folks can do this and some folks they need to find something that's a better fit and that is totally okay and quite frankly i i, I guess the the overall roundabout that i'm getting to, to here is that that's i i feel like that's omn in a nutshell whereas you should be free to just experiment with what you want to find out there and be able to express yourself in whatever media just works best for you yeah you have to find something that makes you happy and my hope is that anyone that comes through this program learns skills that will take them wherever they want to go. You know, it may be in journalism and then they may decide a few years into it as you did to get into something else. Or maybe it's broadcasting or advertising or or hell, it could be in in the medical field. You know, you're still learning how to meet deadlines and talk to people and, and write and share information. All of that is important. So being able to be happy I think is the number one priority of wherever you take your skills. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I just want to say too, I don't know what the chances are, but if there's anybody listening who maybe they're kind of wondering like, Oh gee, like is, uh, you know, cause one thing about journalism is, and this is kind of up in the air too for debate is, Oh, well, once you get out, you're out for good. 
I personally disagree with that. I've known people who, for a lack of better words, have gotten out, um, but they've went back in. Actually, one of them is a OSU alumni. I saw her, uh, you know, I won't name names or put anybody on the spot, but I basically, I saw her leave the industry and then she went back to a very prominent business journal and she's doing really great work, really great, um, really great storytelling, investigative work. And, uh, Right. Because there are good journalism jobs out there. You know, we've talked a little bit about some of the struggles of local journalism, but I don't think those struggles are a death sentence to the industry by any means. I think it's about finding the right fit with managers and owners that care about the quality of the work and care about their readers and their communities. Um, And that's not a unicorn. There are lots of newspapers out there. I think some of them just need a little bit more support right now. Oh, absolutely. And again, I mean, I will, uh, I will definitely uh, speak phrases about my experience with uh, Jerry. And I can't, I can't speak personally on how things are at the Ben Bulletin right now. Um, well, actually, maybe a friend of ours can, uh, uh, Brian Rathbone. He's still a sports reporter with them, actually. Um, and he's doing great work. Yeah, yeah. No, he's doing stellar work. But um, uh, yeah, I, I can't speak personally on that. But I just, I, I know for a fact that if uh, you know, if I were looking at newspapers right now in terms of like, you know, local papers to keep an eye on, Bend would be up there with them. It's important work and it's work that impacts the community, especially on a local level. And uh, I think anyone who's in that industry or, or who has been in that industry um, has done a great service to their readers. And so we need to support it. Support your local media to anyone that's out there that's listening. Please do. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll talk more with Sean Basinger coming up right after this. Hey, we're back. We're talking with Sean Basinger of Fuel Medical Group. Sean was the former editor-in-chief of the Daily Barometer, uh, as well as the opinion editor and a number of other roles in student media and Orange Media Network uh, with his time here. Sean, what got you into journalism to begin with? You know, it's a funny story in a way I, which is like the most cliche way to start a sentence if you ever had one okay but you know it is funny though um <laughs> so i'm I, I'm a video game guy um I mean I I know a lot of people who are you know pretty big on video games right now especially you know whether it's a Nintendo switch or you know uh not being able to get a PlayStation 5 or uh, the steam deck let's let's all talk about the steam deck that's that's a pretty big one but um Actually, that does look cool. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> $5 pre-order, apparently. But uh, no, so video games. Uh, I I was writing about video games a lot and, and reviewing and blogging and, and working with a couple of other guys um, at uh, uh, slightly just local slash small outlet uh, that just put out reviews and uh, features and I was thinking like you know I kind of wanted to get a little more and this was back in 2011 I was thinking I, I kind of want to learn a little bit more about the journalistic aspect of of everything that goes in this because I knew that video games journalists as as they're called did exist and were putting out some stellar work um, and still are uh, because there's a lot to write about in that industry and there always there always has been even back to the days of like the early Nintendo power um, and so I decided uh, for whatever reason that that path started at community college and at uh, 
my local student newspaper there. So uh, I went to uh, Rob Prive and uh, the commuter there, and I just wanted to learn more just about the fundamentals of day-to-day uh, -day journalism. And lo and behold, the more I started to do it and the more that I started seeing just the discombobulation in the games industry, uh, I kind of started to fall in love with local journalism. And it's just the activity of getting to go out and just kind of learn something new every day, report on something new, and eventually, um, once I got over to uh, Orange Media Network, uh, kind of started getting more interested in the uh, administrative and governmental side of things. Just like, okay, well, where's where's the money going here? Who's who's really in charge of this? And, 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 and why are things the way that they are? And just yeah. being able to go out there and learn more about it also in a way which I could convey it to other folks who were just curious about what was going on in their own communities and one thing led to another and it just kind of snowballed at the time. Can I ask you how you made that transition in your mind to write a general kind of journalism because you got into it you were excited about the prospect of maybe writing about video games and getting into that side of things um, and then, as you mentioned, you started writing about government and you started writing about the university. How did you work within your own mind to say, you know, hey, I got into this because I wanted to write about video games. Oh, but this is really interesting, too. And I can kind of apply what I've learned here to that. What was that process like? You know, I would say overall, it just struck a chord. And I'm somebody who personally, like when I... And I, and I can't speak for everybody by, by far because everybody's learning style is going to be different um, just like everybody's teaching style is also going to be different but from my personal experience it was just kind of getting the nag for something that would that that that, that just really sparked my interest I guess and uh, and it was kind of also just kind of putting myself in uh, the position of the other students where it's like okay well you know tuition dollars for instance it's like this is something that we're all just kind of putting into the pot for well where are these student where are these uh, tuition dollars going okay well some of them they go toward uh, you know um, other student programs or uh, student fees is another one that's just kind of uh, supplemental okay well where's the student fee money going and then sure enough uh, there's just a variety of programs and other just so much stuff there basically and sorry it's like i'm trying to Try to remember back to like between 2014 and 2016 too. Um, Did you find that when you started writing about those other topics, was there something that really spoke to you in terms of the stories that you covered in journalism? You know, I'd say in terms of topics, one thing that really spoke to me was uh, just everyday happenings and activities that uh, really impacted students that other folks might not have looked into previously like uh, case in point one topic uh that we focused on and uh when i was at lynn benton was uh the uh, baseball team basically um running out of funding and not being able to play anymore um and this just kind of uh, snowballed uh, into just its own saga of stories over time or uh, when i was at osu uh there was a lot of controversy about uh, where money was going for uh, the Safe Ride program, and Safe Ride is a that's a resource that a lot of students use and uh, depend on in in a lot of cases. Um, so, I think that that was also a really important topic that uh, 
folks got to touch on in terms of just kind of connecting it back to community. Sean, what's your advice for a student reporter to help them dig deeper in their work? You brought up the baseball team story you uh, were reporting on for the commuter and their lack of funding. If, if there's a young sports reporter out there and they're thinking right now, well, I thought sports is all about just writing about what happens in the games. What advice would you give them to dig deeper and search for those deeper stories beyond the surface level? I would say just always be eager to ask questions, uh, and especially, and, and it's a, it's a, it's an old adage. It's a bit of a cliche, but follow the money. It's certainly true, especially in the world of journalism and even sports journalism, especially because there's a, there's a lot of money flowing in the sports realm, uh, and so just in terms of. Uh, especially if you're on the college side of things too um, the story doesn't necessarily stop at the coach um, there are other uh, administrators athletic directors um, folks behind the scenes uh, who might be able to point you in the right direction and in a lot of cases too and i'm sure that uh, folks can help with this at uh, OM, omn as well but um records requests um, you'd be surprised too uh, how much of this might be public record um, Fortunately, uh, private donations and of the such aren't necessarily so that that might be a bit of a uh, might be a bit of curveball in itself. But um, yeah. in other cases, um, yeah, there there's a lot out there that you can find in that realm. Why why do this work at all? You know, why if I'm a student, should I care about uncovering information and holding people accountable and, and becoming a student journalist? Why is it important? I'd say at the end of the day, Stephen, it's it affects everybody, especially just campus wide um, in terms of where, again, coming back to tuition dollars, especially. I mean, this is everybody's money. And if you don't want to talk about the money, it's everybody's resources. It's everybody's livelihood. It's it in some way, shape or form. It 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 affects everybody. Sean, I appreciate you saying that. When you look back on your time as a student journalist, what did you feel your impact was? You know, I'd say overall, just being able to work with a, a, a series of other talented folks uh, that really may... Uh, I mean, I've had a couple of people even, well, when I had an office, come into my office at the time and maybe they didn't know how to approach a certain situation or maybe they didn't even know if they necessarily wanted to keep doing this and even back then I, I i made it pretty clear that it's like you know whatever you got to do it's totally okay it's like if you are wanting to stick around here though i you know I, myself and the other editors uh, hope to help you get the best work out there that you can get done and uh, help all the other people uh, around you that would benefit from either uh, being a part of or even just reading your story and I, I would say, God, it's hard to, it's hard to put a, uh, you know, and, and I'm just going to be candid. I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily, personally speaking, have a capstone feature or, or story um, that I personally worked on because everything that was done at the barometer when I was there personally, it was, it was a team effort. Um, it was a and it was a very reconstructive effort too because it was we were going through that beginning part of the transition of not becoming a daily of of going to um semi semi daily and 
just between it all, just getting to see some of the projects that folks did put out there, like we did have, uh, like just seeing all of the uh, editorials and forum pieces that uh, Cassie Rude helped in putting out, um, getting to see uh, just all the stellar news leads, because we had a lot of, you know, I guess I will say, uh, McKinley Smith, she was our news editor, and she was just on it with our breaking news stories. Everything from uh, coach, uh, former coach Mike Riley to just taking a plane to Nebraska. Um, Brian Rathbone, he was also instrumental in that story coming out, by the way, to um, uh, some of the uh, other stuff that was going on again with the Safe Ride programs and kind of seeing that continue even into the next year with um, uh, new editors, uh, Kat Cothin uh, at the time, she was there for a short while, um, but really spearheaded by uh, Rachel Sukan, um, and eventually uh, going over to future editors, uh, Marcus Trinidad and uh, Riley Youngman, um, Lawrence Luss. Um, I mean, there's just, uh, and I, these are folks that I even barely, like I was just a grumpy old forum editor by the time I got to see them doing their <laughs> best work. So my, my thoughts didn't matter at that point, but um, oh, but you know no. what? But you know what it did, and I think what you're describing there is you're is you're outlining the the different editors that came after you and the work and the important stories that they did. That's a legacy. That's a legacy that's built on everyone that came before them, and they built a legacy that is being built on by the people that came after them, because it's good journalism written by a strong team that cared about their community. To me, Sean, that is a huge impact, and I think you and your team just deserve all the kudos from the time that you were there. I'm terrible with compliments. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. And if uh, you want to keep that line, I will not hate you. <laughs> Fair enough. Sean, before I go, you mentioned this a couple of times throughout this interview, your love of video games. I have to ask, how many video games do you think you own? Oh, good lord! Because uh, I've seen I've seen your photos. You, you've got you've got a, a a wall of video games. If you had to take a guess, how many do you think it would be? Well, if you're not counting the hundred or so in my Steam library, which, I, which for Steam library, I suppose that's actually kind of small. But physical games. Last time I counted, I was at about fifteen hundred. Wow! Which, believe it or don't, Stephen, that's nothing. Like <laughs> it's nothing. To, I. <laughs> I, I kid you not that compared to some of the collectors that I've also met, spoken with, seen like there, there are case in point. There's actually one guy I still, uh, every once in a while I'll pop in a podcast with him, but the guy has upwards of like 5,000 games. Um, and even that's outdated information. This, this was like five, 10 years ago. So he might even be up to 10,000 at this point. For oh my now. goodness. But yeah. Um, because, I mean, there are roughly, like, 900 to 1,000 games in, like, the entire NES library alone. Uh, don't even get me started on the size of the Switch library. Like, <laughs> and that's, that's... It's only been out since 2017, and there are so many games available for it. It's insane. Well, let's fire up the NES this weekend, uh, pull one of those games out of storage, and, uh, and let me know about it. Uh, Sean Basinger... Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Let's catch up again soon. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. But whatever we do, just don't play level four world one in Super Mario World 3 because who does that? Who does that? No, no who one. Who does that? You can skip it entirely. It's unnecessary. I mean, 
mean, it is fun for one-ups. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Sean. And if you'd like to learn more about Orange Media Network, just head to orangemedianetwork.com. I'm Steven Sandberg, and again, this is the OMN Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.